Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Could the Zika virus make its way to the United States? What makes a Super Bowl commercial successful? But up front on Friday's program, WITF's Capitol Bureau Chief Mary Wilson is here with Capitol Week in Review. Mary, welcome to the show. Hi, Scott. Next week is a big week. I mean, we had a lot going on this week, but uh, we're going to look ahead a little bit to next week. Uh, Something that we always look forward to is the governor's budget address. And this year is going to be a little bit different. Governor Tom Wolf lays out his 2016-2017 budget on Tuesday, the 9th of February. Now, this comes at a time when we don't have a complete budget in place for this fiscal year. Do we know how this is going to work? No. (laughs) There's the easy answer. Yeah. Yeah. In a word, no. Um, The governor's been pretty careful about not leaking any details of his plan. He did um, come out and and announce uh, his desire for education funding this week. Um, But, you know, we're not really sure. It'll be interesting to see kind of what tone he strikes in his budget if he uses it to continue to push for some of the things he's been saying in the impasse we find ourselves in or if he'll try to really set a different agenda or a, or a different tone somehow. Um, so so that, that will be interesting, but, but we don't know how this is going to go. Logistically is another question as to how it is going to work. Uh, I think that's something that I, at least I have a hard time wrapping my head around is right, when you don't have a complete budget for this year and you're laying out plans for next year. Now, you know, there have, have been some people who think that uh, Pennsylvania should adopt a two-year budget plan anyway. Mm-hmm. But as you said, the tone of it will be very interesting because last year the governor making his first budget address, I mean, it was accepted pretty well, when I say pretty well, meaning uh, as far as sitting back listening by legislators. I wonder if they're a, a little more um, emotional this time, uh, reactive to it, responsive to mm-hmm. it, uh, knowing uh, what's happened over the last year. They might it, be too tired, you it, know, it, honestly. It, they it, might be a little bedraggled. You mentioned two-year budget, and if I could, the state used to use a two-year budget model. I mean, one of the things that's it's kind of hard to appreciate, unless you're kind of in the thick of this stuff every day, is that um, there's a process with the budget um, with the drafting, with the approval, there's an internal process that we don't see where agency heads are going over with their subordinates, you know, what they've spent and what they might need for the upcoming year. And then there's this whole packet that gets, you know, that gets reviewed by the uh, governor's administration, and then that gets presented. So it, it's quite a process. We come in kind of on in the middle of it when we get the governor's budget proposal every Feb- February. And um, the state used to do that process every two years. And it wasn't until, I think it was uh, 59, that that was changed. And it was changed in part because um, it was kind of, I mean, the state's always had problems balancing its budget, trying to figure out what you spend and what you might need. And um, that's, that's always been difficult. So the two-year budget process made it a little bit difficult, as I, as I understand, to, um, to react to unexpected changes and, and um, wrinkles in the forecast of what you might need and what you might spend. See, I, I always wonder about that because you're right. Even the one-year forecast Conditions change. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, last two years, we've actually brought in more revenue than projected. This year, I understand not as much as what we did last year. But uh, trying to look ahead and, uh, you know, there are natural disasters. There are a lot of things that can that can pop up. There in are that man-made budget. disasters. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. And, you know, here's a situation where we don't have a budget in place. So we're trying to 
picture what's going to happen, trying to project what's going to happen starting July 1st of uh, 2016. So, yeah, I, I would think that, that that would be difficult. As you mentioned, the governor said this week he'll ask for $200 million more in education spending. Now, this is on top of, and I'm going to be broad here because this is part of the budget that is not complete, mm-hmm. $350 million to $400 million more he wanted this year and thought was in the framework, as it's called. Now, thinking, what, what's his thinking behind this uh, $200 million in additional uh, education spending? I, I don't know what his thinking is. Um, what he has said is that he does not think the, the state is putting enough money into education, that he is not going to slow down um, in his call to, to pump more money into schools. And um, he remains committed to that to that fight, and the, and that you know even though um, a deal might have might have collapsed in in cr- right before the holidays, he said this week that he felt pretty confident, pretty proud of how close he got to what he wanted, with as you mentioned this framework agreement that was reached a little bit before Thanksgiving. Everybody else has said, dude, that framework is dead. Um, and when I say everybody else, I mean people in the legislature. Um, so primarily Republicans talking here, um, but but also Democrats who didn't vote for a major piece, Democrats in the House who didn't vote for a major piece of that framework deal. So, um, look, I think the governor's thinking is I'm not I'm not done fighting. The, the challenge for him is that he seems to be operating by a different, you know, playbook or I mean, he, he seems to have a different understanding of the reality than the other people at the negotiating table. And maybe it's just rhetoric. And maybe I'm a total fool for, you know, thinking that things have changed since right before the holidays. Um, but look, we're a, we're a month into the we're a month into the calendar year and nobody has made any procedural moves to get back to that point where where the governor found himself close to a deal. Perhaps we haven't seen anything um, any movement toward that. So it it looks to me like the deal is dead. That tentative deal that the governor thought he had is dead. Um, and that we're kind of starting over. Speaking of rhetoric, uh, Republicans said after uh, December 23rd when uh, Governor Wolf blue-lined uh, some of the budget that w- the Republicans had passed in the legislature, it was $30.2 billion. He accepted 23, a little over $23 billion. Uh, Republicans said that, okay, we have a budget in place. We can live by, by this budget. Was that just rhetoric, or did they mean that? Well, House, I mean, it, it, it is and it isn't. So House Republicans have been saying technically there is a budget in place. And so by the letter of the law, that will affect things like, you know, for, for example, money was money was um, line item vetoed for the correction system. So state prisons are going to run out of money um, maybe very soon. And the rules in place for state agencies that don't have enough money uh, in, in the event of an impasse, the rule, the, the law of the land in Pennsylvania is that state employees have to continue to be paid, even if people up at the top are still fighting over spending. If is that still true? Do state employees, do corrections officers still get paid if technically there's a budget on the books, even though it is, you know, a shadow of what, you know, the state needs? Um, So in that way, yes, there's a budget in place. But most people, the House Republicans not included in this, are saying our work is not complete, Um, that Wolf clearly line item vetoed things in order to prompt 
um, uh, you know, more discussion, to force more discussion on spending. And that major, major pieces of the budget remain unfinished, you know. Funding was vetoed for agriculture, for corrections, for um, some for schools, for rural hospitals and, and burn units and things that are that that are very popular among Republicans. And so there are going to be um, things that are Republicans are going to move supplemental funding bills to line up money for those things. So in that way, the budget is definitely not done. You know, we can't anticipate uh, the strategy behind negotiations, but uh, just one of the things I, I thought of with the governor asking for this additional $200 million, that one of several things could happen. Uh, you lay out the scenarios. Uh, one is that the legislature will hold out for less this year when they do complete this year's budget uh, or give the three and give the 350 or $400 million this year and say no to next year. Those are just a couple of the scenarios. I know you can't uh, speculate on that, but the point I'm making is that there could be a psychological effect on with the governor asking for that $200 million, or at least it could change the strategy of what Republicans want to do. Yeah, I, yes. I, I don't know. I really don't know how to game that out. I mean, at, at a certain point, it starts to feel like um, the ask gets bigger and bigger and bigger, even though so little. I, I mean, the governor said this week he was really heartened by all the progress he made toward his goal. But that was progress made a month ago. And since there has been no progress. So um, at a certain point, I guess my point is, you know, the governor keeps asking for this funding and there's no movement in the legislature to meet him halfway so does it matter? You know, if the governor asks for another million dollars and nobody hears it, <laughs> does it does it still happen? Yeah. Uh, do we know if the governor, did he lay out anything else that, uh, you know, kind of give us a sneak peek into anything else he may ask for? You know, he's been saying that he's um, not done fighting for a severance tax on natural gas drillers. So I, I assume we'll hear about that next week. I want to switch gears. Another big story this week. Uh, state police came under scrutiny when it was reported that half of the current cadet class may have cheated. Do we know any more than that? Uh, cheated in what way? I know the state police had a release out yesterday, right. but do we know any other details? The short answer is no, not really. the The release yesterday came from the state police commissioner, who whose hand was kind of forced by the governor. The governor was asked at a press availability, "What can you say about this story broken by WHTM ABC twenty seven Dennis Owens um, that there's cheating on?" A test, uh, as I understand, uh, it shared answers possibly between f current and former cadets on a test. Um, so Dennis Owens reports this story. It's out, I believe, on Monday morning, and um, the the governor is asked about this three times. And I think on the second time, he says, um, "We're going to do our best to get at the bottom." To get, I'm t totally paraphrasing, but he says, "You know, we're going to get to the bottom of any cheating that went on." And so the, the story that came out of that was this indirect confirmation by the governor that there was an internal investigation at the state police confirming news reports that had come out um, and and confirming it even though the state police, you know, as an agency had declined to comment on this issue. Um, so, so then the day after the governor kind of gets out in front of the story, the state police releases the statement that's yesterday, and they say um, it's an internal investigation. It began in December. It's included interviews, 
evidence collection. Um, it refers to the 144th cadet class. It does not specifically lay out the scope of the investigation. So they didn't mention troopers or former cadets who perhaps are not troopers yet uh, now. But so we don't we don't know how far this goes. We don't know how long the investigation is going to take. We don't know if superiors of the cadets knew about possible cheating. You know, there are a lot, a lot of questions we still don't know yeah. the answer to. Uh, WHCM reported last night that uh, five members of that class left. Uh, sure. Yes. And without giving reason. Right. And so it's one but of those cadets things. But cadets leave. I, I oh, mean, okay. you know. That's good. I'm glad listen, you're telling me this. I mean, a class starts with 115 cadets. And as I understand it, not necessarily all of those people leave as troopers or stay the whole time. It's a really intense um, training period, several months long training period to become a state trooper. So um, and the state commissioner himself in his statement said, um, you know, the public's got to be patient and do not make the assumption that people who leave the cadet class um, are connected to this, to the, to suspected cheating. I'm glad you pointed it out. Mary Wilson, WITF's Capitol Bureau Chief, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. In May of 2015, the Pan American Health Organization issued an alert regarding the first confirmed Zika virus infection in Brazil. The outbreak in Brazil led to reports of pregnant women giving birth to babies with birth defects and poor pregnancy outcomes. Since then, the virus has spread to Mexico and other Latin American countries. Last week, Florida Governor Rick Scott declared five counties under a state of emergency in his state because 12 people were found to have the Zika virus, which is spread by mosquito bites. Could it spread more into the United States and even into Pennsylvania? Joining us is Dr. John Wallace, a medical entomologist and professor of biology at Millersville University. Dr. Wallace, thank you very much for joining us today. Hi, Scott. It's a pleasure being here. Thanks for having me. This is kind of like the talk of the country right now. In fact, it was one of the lead stories on NPR today uh, because, you know, we had a story earlier this week that the Zika virus was spread in the United States by sexual contact. Mm. Just heard a story this morning on NPR that it was spread by a blood transfusion. Sure. So it's more than just the mosquito bite at this point. Let's start off with one of the basics. What is the Zika virus? Well, the Zika virus is uh, a member of a group of viruses that actually is uh, it's related to dengue. It's related to West Nile. Um, it's a virus that we've known about for, well, probably since the late 1940s. Uh, yeah, so it's not new. It's not new. However, it's new to different geographical regions. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that it's, it's uh, tied to a vector, a mosquito vector, that loves to be around humans. And so where you have, and, and, and because we provide and we create a lot of habitat for this type of mosquito, it's, it makes it easier to transmit the virus to humans, and, it's, and, it, and so th subsequently it spreads quite quickly that way. What kind of uh, mosquito are we talking about? Well, right now what we know is that the yellow fever mosquito, the Aedes aegypti mosquito, is its primary vector, and, uh, and that, that mosquito is uh, distributed throughout many of these tropical countries where we see Zika... Um, uh, 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 you know, uh, becoming more and more of an issue. And so there's um, another mosquito species that's the Asian tiger mosquito, that's Aedes albopictus, which has a little bit broader distribution, at least here in the United States, 
Hades aegypti is pretty much restricted to the southern tier states, Florida, around the Gulf, maybe up to the Carolinas, maybe Virginia. Um, not so much in Pennsylvania. However, the Asian tiger mosquito, Aedes albopictus, uh, we do have in Pennsylvania. <laughs> and, and that's potentially um, another vector for Zika. And one of the key words there is potentially. And wanted to talk about this mosquito in particular because it's a little bit different. Uh, many of us, when we think about mosquitoes here in uh, this part of Pennsylvania, we picture you know, summer evening when the sun is going down, we're sitting on the deck of the patio or we're at a ball game or something like that, and we feel a mosquito or see mosquitoes flying around maybe early in the morning. This mosquito is different, though. You're talking about the yellow fever, yes. Aedes aegypti? Yes. In terms of its biting? Yes. Yes. Uh, it's a day biter. And so that's that's one of the things that when you know when a mosquito feeds, that helps uh, those of us who are trying to control outbreaks of, of diseases, such as the Zika virus, uh, we can take precautions. And so... And so there are there are repellents that can be used. You can dress appropriately with long sleeves. And so knowing that this mosquito bites during the day is a big step in terms of trying to control the spread of the virus. Mm -hmm. Now, you said in the southern part of the United States, and we're thinking of warmer climates like mm -hmm. Brazil, like Central America, sure. like uh, Mexico. Uh, when you say that it has the potential to spread into Pennsylvania. Why is there that potential? Well, you know, we're already seeing right now, I think the last I've looked was 48 cases in the United States. And and those are spread across 12 states. And for the most part, I would, I would suspect most of those cases are from people who have traveled to these regions and have... Florida left. said that all the cases were contracted outside the United States. That's most likely, that's probably the case. And that's the same with another related virus, chikungunya. Uh, Zika tends to follow chikungunya, and that's what's been happening in, uh, prior to Zika's arrival to Florida. It's, uh, chikungunya has been, been spreading throughout the state. And so, so these people that are traveling may not know that they're infected. And so when they get to a region, say, for example, Pennsylvania, because we've already seen cases in New York and Massachusetts and New Jersey and Virginia, and it's only a matter of time before there are cases here. The difference is, is that when do those cases appear? Right now, we, we don't have any mosquitoes, adult mosquitoes biting. And so it's a non-issue in terms of the virus, uh, in terms of the duration of the viruses in the human body and uh, uh, with the timing of the mosquitoes. Where, that's a, where that comes into um, another situation is when we have, when we're in mosquito season. Mm. And then there are people traveling around. For example, uh, one, one uh, uh, particular time period that probably is going to be a major concern is when people travel to Brazil for the Olympics. Right. And when they're returning back to this country and wherever else they're returning, they may be returning with the virus. And then, and then we have, and we had, and that's a mosquito time in this country. For those who listen, you know that, uh, you know, we're very laid back, very relaxed in the program. So I'm going to tell you, Dr. Wallace, Mickey Angle has uh, your, your jacket with your glasses if you want to get your glasses. <laughs> yeah. You remember just before we went on the air that uh, your glasses were in the other room. So if you yeah. want to grab that yeah. while we're talking, yeah. go right ahead. You, you haven't needed them so far unless I'm blurry when you're taking a look no, at them. No, no, no. And you're not no, missing we're anything, good. I'm we're telling good. you. We're good there. In fact, uh, <laughs> it seems to me I've probably misplaced them somewhere. Oh, okay. So. All right. Oh, yeah. Typical professor in my pocket. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh. 
Ace Radio, folks. It's, yeah. it's, 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 it's a great description. But, yeah, they were in your pocket, weren't they? Yeah, they were. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about uh, once the mosquito has bitten and symptoms are presented. From what I understand, uh, not everyone who gets this mosquito bite is going to present with symptoms, correct? That's what we know right now. In fact, uh, approximately one in five people. And so many people are walking around asymptomatic. They don't know they have the virus in them. And so in terms of symptoms that do appear, okay, in those in that the 20% of people, uh, what we're seeing is uh, rash, fever, uh, maybe some joint pain, maybe some conjunctivitis, something like that. Um, but, uh, you know, most people are not uh, uh, presenting with any symptoms. But many of those symptoms you just described could be a lot of things. There could be a lot of things. It's, in fact, actually, uh, Zika has been likened to a, uh, a very lesser form of, of dengue, extremely lesser, because dengue is a very severe uh, disease. Uh, but the point is is that a lot of these, these arboviruses, and when I talk about arboviruses, I'm talking about a virus that's transmitted by an arthropod, uh, namely mosquitoes in this case. And many of them are, because of these are, these are related, their symptoms are very close. And so it makes it very difficult to determine, is this Zika or is this something else? And that's, one of, that's an issue in terms of uh, trying to uh, monitor the spread of the disease. That's always been an issue with any of these, these arboviruses that we have that, that when we have an outbreak, say, for example, with West Nile, confusing it with something else. All right, but then it does get more serious once uh, pregnant women, and again, not all, but when some pregnant women have been bitten by this mosquito, how does that occur? Well, it, okay, so while I'm not a medical doctor, and I and there's not, to my knowledge, there's not been a cause, uh, a causative relationship between Zika and, say, for example, what they're talking about with microcephaly, right, and. Um, and, Which is uh, the babies born with smaller heads. Exactly, and Guillain-Barre syndrome, which has to do with the uh, um, immune system attacking the nervous system and potentially causing paralysis. N to my knowledge, there's not been any ca uh, causative studies that have shown cause and effect. There's been some correlational uh, and strong correlational studies, but uh, nothing that's been cause and effect. So in terms of when... Uh, in, in terms of pregnant women being bitten, they, I, the point there is to try and take precautions. I think the risk is when uh, women do not know they're pregnant. And, and in any case, you know, when you, when you travel to these areas where Zika is fairly uh, prevalent, then you definitely want to take precaution in terms of using repellent, uh, not going outside during the day. And that's difficult to say when, if you're traveling to these areas. Uh, but that's what you that's that's what should be done. In fact, the Centers for Disease Control in this country have advised women, if not, you know, they haven't said you can't go to these countries, but they've advised them to be very careful if, if they do go to these countries. Women who may be pregnant or are pregnant or, or already. And, you know, the Olympics are what I think is is you know, really concerning a lot of people because so many people will be traveling to traveling to Brazil uh, this summer and uh, I th from the world over. But I have to say that, uh, you know, it is a real concern when you hear that um, the virus was spread sexually 
at least in one case here mm. in this country, and now hearing that it is has been spread through a blood transfusion, I mean, that seems like it has the potential to make the spread even faster and more in areas geographically where uh, there won't be these mosquitoes this summer. That's that's true, um, and that's a good point. And we see that. I don't think we've seen sexual transmission with West Nile, but we've definitely seen West Nile be transmitted via blood supplies, uh, 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 breast milk. And so those are concerns, and we have to be aware of that in terms of uh, blood donation and checking uh, checking blood supplies for this virus. Uh, however, I think that that mode of trans those modes of transmission are uh, relatively minor uh, cons- uh, compared to uh, mosquitoes, just because of the prevalence of mosquitoes, the difficulty in controlling them in certain areas, and the fact that we humans travel from one region to another in a matter of hours, and so just that quickly there can be a new case. Uh, appear. Tell me if this is accurate. I read uh, somewhere that uh, this Zika virus is spread when a mosquito bites a human who has been infected and then carries it to another human. That the mosquito itself, just a mosquito bite, uh, is not what causes the virus, but it's spread from human to human by the by the mosquito. Is that accurate? Right. So, so many times people say. Uh, mosquitoes or insects spread disease, right. they actually spread the pathogen that causes disease. And so what happens is, is that the mosquito will bite uh, an infective person where the virus is at a level in the blood which the mosquito might pick up. And then that mosquito carries the virus, it virus makes its way into the salivary glands, and then as a mosquito begins to fly and travel to another person and maybe takes another blood meal, then it transmits the virus as it uh, injects uh, an anticoagulant into your skin to keep the blood from clotting, that virus then be, uh, enters the the, the um, uh, uh, your 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 blood system, and 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 then you're inf- then you become infected, and that's and then that's then that cycle just and if the virus is able to uh, replicate uh, to a level where it's high enough for another vector, another mosquito can pick it up, and that's how these dis- that's how these pathogens spread from person to person. So this isn't unusual. Then. No, it's not. Mm-hmm. It's it's fairly typical. It's it's you know one of the things that you know we see as we as we as humans begin to or continue to perturb the environment, go into areas that where we where we haven't been in the past, and this is one of the things that's happened with Zika because it was primarily tied up with primates and in Africa, but as as we disturb areas, we'll start to see this emergence of uh, newer uh, pathogens in our in our um, in our societies, and and these and these may or may not be uh, severe, but the point is that we will st- we this is just the beginning of some of, the, some of these these outbreaks. But what I, the one thing I want to point out here is that we in the United States we're prepared because. You know, one of the things that West Nile created was uh, numerous, many states uh, initiating mosquito surveillance and mosquito control. And Pennsylvania has one of the best uh, West Nile surveillance and control. And they're going to be right on top of this. And so, so this program, these programs that we have across the United States, 
they're locked in on this. And so the, you know, this firestorm that the media is creating with Zika right now, um, they're, they're going to be all over this. And so, and, and ironically, uh, come September, there's going to be an entomology uh, conference, which has the Entomology Society of America and the International Congress of Entomology. There may be 10,000 entomologists in Florida in September. Just in time. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys are kind of like uh, taking your chances. Uh, huh? Well, you know, it's our wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> and you're planning to be there? I probably will be there. <laughs> uh, um, I, and I just wanted to bring this up. I had a, a listener yesterday send me an, an email and a link to an article uh, by someone who had written an article saying that uh, they think that uh, the pot, one of the reasons that the Zika has spread is uh, having to do with vaccinations, having to do with uh, some shots that have been given out. Hmm. Have you heard that, and is that a possibility? Vaccinations for Zika or just— No, not vaccine—because I wanted to ask—that was my next yeah. question. Is yeah. there a vaccination for Zika? There isn't, is there? Uh, no, not yet. No, not yet. However, uh, there is. There actually, my understanding is recently there's been one developed for dengue, and because Zika is related to dengue, it's probably feasible that something might be developed uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, but going back to your other question, um, so you're talking about just simple uh, hypodermic needle sticks, right. right? Well, that's a very interesting question, and and I don't want to go into a whole other digression. I'm actually working on a disease in West Africa and in Australia in which that kind of um, mode of transmission looks to be uh, uh, very plausible. However, I don't think, because that, what we're talking about here is that the virus that have to be on the skin. And I think what you're getting at, or maybe the emailer is getting at, that this puncture, um, this puncture might uh, cause the virus to enter the bloodstream and then uh, uh, cause disease at that point. Um, that's happened before with other with another. It's actually been demonstrated in the lab, but I think it's highly unlikely that you're going to be bathed with this virus or this. It, it's extremely uh, improbable that that would ever happen. So I would say that's that's not really that's a non-issue. And I anticipated we'd get a question like this. Uh, Matt in York asked, my sister is three months pregnant and has planned a five-day vacation in South Florida in early March. How concerned should she be about the virus? Well, I, I think that uh, she should be mildly concerned and she should take the precautions when she travels to Florida. She should not uh, be outside during the uh, during the daytime, she should she it's should Florida, Doctor Wallace. Yeah, I know, and it's and it's March, and it, and, yeah. and you're going there to be outside. Well, then, you know, there are there are very good repellents. Um, she asked, I mean, you know, again, I think she ought to con- uh, consult with her medical doctor in terms of what kind of um, repellents that she could use that would be safe. Uh, but then again, uh, you know, monitor your time outside. You wear uh, lighter colored clothing. Mosquitoes, especially Aedes aegypti, are attracted to darker colors, and so those are some precautions you can take, and 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 just be aware of uh, where she goes and 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 the time that she spends out in mosquito habitat. Beach, I I, I don't remember seeing a lot of mosquitoes on the beach because it's windy. Uh, you know, there's a lot of activity, water moving. It's not standing still. Uh, those who want to go on the beach, are there a lot of mosquitoes on the beach? 
Well, generally not. But again, it depends on where you're going. Sometimes remote beaches, if you try to take a walk and you get away from those breezes, if there's trails, then you might come upon. I've been to some areas where the mosquitoes would just lift you away, uh, not far from the beach. And so, um, again, you know, generally when you're sitting out in the sand, uh, I've not experienced that so much. But uh, again, it's 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 being uh, uh, careful and being cautious. All right. We only have a minute or so left. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. I think the big question that many people have listening, and you kind of touched on this earlier, but that potential to make it here to Pennsylvania, I'm not going to ask you to put odds on it, but do you think it can happen? I think we're going to see cases. The difference is, where are these cases? How do they occur? Do they occur from mosquitoes that uh, bite someone who's infected here? Or do they come from, do the, are these people that are traveling from these regions and all of a sudden they experience symptoms and then they get logged in as a case? And th- so we will see cases eventually. I don't think that's, I, I think if, if Aedes albopictus, the Asian tiger mosquito, uh, proves or demonstrates to be a competent vector of Zika, uh, which it hasn't yet, I think we will probably see some cases. Regardless, I think people traveling to these, I suspect there may be Pennsylvanians traveling to the Olympics. They may come back, and we may have cases uh, come fall. Mm. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Dr. John Wallace is a medical entomologist and professor of biology at Millersville University. Thank you, Dr. Wallace. Yeah, thank you, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Super Bowl 50 between the Denver Broncos and Carolina Panthers will be played this Sunday before one of the largest TV audiences of all time. Not everyone will be interested in the game, though. Advertisers will run commercials that will be expensive, many times clever, many times funny, to make an impression on those millions of viewers. The commercials are so much a part of the Super Bowl that they often are critiqued for weeks afterwards. Some have been called classics, and we'll talk about a few of them today. Our guests today have studied what makes for a successful Super Bowl commercial. Joining us is Keith Quisenberry, Assistant Professor of Marketing at Messiah College, and David Hagenboo, who is a Marketing and Business Ethics Professor and founder of Mindful Marketing at Messiah College. Thank both of you for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Scott. All right, so... You two apparently will be watching the game, but what will you be looking for when it comes uh, time for the commercials? Will you be able to enjoy the commercials, or this will this be an academic study? I, I still will be able to enjoy the commercials, Scott. <laughs> yeah, it'll, uh, it'll be a good time both in terms of football and in terms of advertising. Yeah. I, I actually um, I had done research on this, and, and the, the research I did with um, – uh, Professor Michael Colson at Shippensburg University. And when we studied, the, the thing I'll be looking for is we found that the commercials that perform well in the polls, people like, they tend to share and watch over and over again, are the ones that tell complete stories. So I'm looking for the ads that don't just have a celebrity in with, with no reason. They don't just tell an extended joke. Are they telling a, a story like a mini movie? And that tends to draw people in and draw their attention. All right. Well, give me some examples because I have a couple to run here today, but one of the things that I did find is that so many of these commercials are visual, since it's TV, that they don't translate well to radio. I do have a couple, but uh, what are some of the classics, some of the ones in your mind that tell a story? Uh, well, last year, the the uh, Anheuser-Busch spot Lost Puppy 
you know, the Clydesdales always tell stories, but right. last year it was the farmer and he wakes up and he has this little puppy and then he goes to town and the puppy sneaks into the back of the trailer, right? So we have an introduction of a setting the scene of the farmer and, and, and then there's a inciting moment like, oh, something's happening and the, the puppy goes to town, the puppy gets lost in the town and this is going towards a climax where uh, the farmer realizes the puppy's lost, he's putting up signs. The puppy finally makes it home at night and then the, is faced with this wolf, and the wolf's growling at him. That's the climax of the story. The Clydesdales, meanwhile, notice this. They come running to the rescue of the lost puppy, scare away the wolf. All is saved, and then you come towards the end of the story, and at the end, the farmer gets the puppy back in the morning and sits down in the, bar, in the barn and has a Budweiser with the puppy and the Clydesdale, and all is saved. Now, the way you just described it sounded very much like a story. As I was watching that series of commercials last year, I wasn't really thinking of it that way. It, it is hard to go wrong with a cute puppy in a commercial, but Budweiser Anheuser-Busch has done a fantastic job over the years with their Super Bowl commercials. Uh, let's, let's talk about how effective that commercial was, though. Do you think that commercial sold more beer? Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> I, I think Keith and I were talking a little bit about this even before coming on, and uh, one of the things that Anheuser-Busch really has going for it when it uses the Clydesdales is they've become such a, an icon of the company that uh, people will remember um, a spot and associate it with uh, Anheuser because of the Clydesdales. So I think in that respect, um, it's good reminder advertising, and it probably has a good chance of being effective. Uh, unlike some other ads that also tell a story that uh, might not make the same powerful brand association, and uh, even though the story, even though the storytelling is very good, the chances of that being remembered and moving um, consumers through the ADA model, which is something we often talk about in our marketing classes, that's attention, interest, desire, and action, might not happen with other ads. And An ad that I would point to that would be an example of that, good storytelling but probably not as effective, would be the, the Fiat ad that was run last year. Um, that's an ad. Uh, Describe it. Yeah, this is an ad where it starts off with some uh, music being played. Uh, looks like it's taking place in a, a villa in Italy, and there's a woman, an older woman, who's lying seductively on a bed. And... Um, she motions to her uh, husband, who would seem that you know she's ready for some uh, romance, and uh, he uh, smiles and and gets excited and starts to open a uh, a bottle that has a blue one blue pill left in it, and uh, he uh, inadvertently misses his mouth with the pill, and the pill goes bouncing around the the village and you know, all kinds of interesting action, and uh, in the end um, it ends up landing in the gas tank of a, of a car that uh, the car feels the effects of the, um, the enhancement of pill <laughs> and gets bigger. Um, it's a very uh, interesting ad, funny, um, uh, memorable because of the storytelling. But an interesting thing that um, I experienced is I'm watching just a month or two after that Super Bowl uh, aired and uh, watching a, a business news program, and the two anchors are, are bantering about uh, Super Bowl, and somehow the topic turns to, uh, what was your favorite ad? And they both mention the ad with the blue pill. 
And uh, interestingly, the, the one anchor said, well, that ad probably did really well for Viagra. And uh, the other anchor smiled and corrected him, said, no, that was a Fiat ad. Uh, ironically, that uh, anchor who, who made the mistake, which is something all of us do, I forget who the sponsors are of ads all the time, but um, he's, he's their car guru. So if anything, you'd think that he would have remembered an ad for a car, but he didn't. Um, so that, that speaks to the whole idea of um, ultimately when you're paying this year, which will be um, an average of $4.8 million for a 30-second spot, if you're paying that kind of money, you want to make sure that you're, you're getting the end result that you want, which is, again, going to be some kind of action toward um, uh, purchase. So, Keith, you, you said that uh, the spots that... Um, and by the way, I use spots in our business. Commercials refer to as spots all the time. But the, the spots that tell a story are the ones that are most remembered. But uh, just as was explained, it doesn't necessarily be the, they'll be the most successful. Right. Ideally, the, you just don't tell any story, random story right, and throw right. your logo at the end. The, the story has to be integrally um, about your, your brand. And uh, that David brought up a good example with the Fiat. It's just it was a it was a joke that wasn't completely a, a, about the brand. The, the great thing about the the Clydesdale spots is Anheuser Busch is they're their spokespeople, right? They've created created celebrities out of Anheuser Busch. You can't people look at those horses and they think Budweiser. So when they do a story around that. They are going to get that brand recognition. And to answer your question directly, does it sell? Um, I was just looking this up at the the top, the most popular beer brands in America. Bud, Bud Light is number one. Uh, Coors Light's number two. Number three is Budweiser, ahead of Miller and all these other beers. So, in 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 those terms, it it is selling for them. Mm -hmm. I want to play uh, one of the classics, and everyone points to this as being the first great Super Bowl commercial. Maybe not the first great one, because Mean Joe Green and the, the Coke commercial is considered and has been voted on as the best of all time. But this was the 1984 commercial uh, for Macintosh, and uh, here's, a, here's a portion of it. We are one people, one will, one resolve, one cause. Our enemies shall talk themselves to death, and we will January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. And what the commercial's referring to is Orwell's 1984, Big Brother on the screen, all these uh, people watching. I have to tell you, the first time I saw that commercial, I thought it was scary. Yeah. thought it was a scary commercial, uh, but the woman runs in, throws a hammer through uh, the screen, there's the explosion. So... You know, I, I don't know whether it was you or I saw that someone else had written that uh, that spot, even though it's considered a classic and is remembered so well, always is listed as one of the classics. It didn't necessarily sell Mac computers. Have you have you heard that? Or what are your thoughts on how effective that spot was? Uh, well, I, I don't know what they're basing that on, but 
you know, Apple's the most valuable it brand is in the now. world right yeah. now. It <laughs> so is now, yeah. But and at the time, in 1984, yeah. in the 1984 Super Bowl, uh, that they didn't necessarily see a, a, I, a, a. Of course, there are a lot of factors in that. The price yeah. at the time and everything. Else. I, I think the the strategy for them is they were a small company back then. They didn't have a ton of a marketing budget, and even the Mean Joe Green spot that did technically come before that. That was a regular ad that was already running before the Super Bowl. So what they did that was unique is they had a limited marketing budget. They tried. They decided to put most of their budget into one spot. They knew that the Super Bowl was a large captive audience and they tried to make it a special spot to make this big announcement and you know it it generated a lot of awareness for this small computer company that that most people probably hadn't heard of mm. i think i think the other thing that enters into it if i'm remembering this correctly there's the the ad only aired one time on the super bowl well you know most ads that are on the super bowl only air one time but i mean that was the only time it ever played and um, one of the things that we, we talk about forever in advertising is repetition is such an important part right. of that. Right. So anybody who... Especially in broadcast. Exactly, yeah. right? Yeah. And I mean, the, the way we're wired to learn is, um, well, speaking personally, and I'll forget oftentimes the first time I'm told something and the second time, but maybe after the third or fourth time. So, um, and, and also we think back then, uh, the internet didn't exist then. So the advantage that so many advertisers have now in terms of having the 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 pre-super bowl life of their ads and then the afterlife in terms of the ads playing in social media afterward i mean that didn't happen i mean only now are we able to go onto youtube and watch that ad but at the time that wasn't possible so if it only aired on the super bowl and that was the only time then that was the only exposure people ever got to it now david one of the things you look at is the ethics of some of these ads mm -hmm. uh if you ask people uh, about super bowl ads over the last few years one of uh, the advertisers that probably would come up would be GoDaddy. Mm -hmm. uh i i think about some of their more risque ads that they have had over the years um Talk about that and the ethics that go into it. I mean, I also think about a commercial, and I can't even remember who it was for now, where there were a group of chimps that put a uh, whoopee cushion under a guy's chair. People remember that for years, but I can't tell you who, who it was for. Talk about the ethics that uh, advertisers are thinking about, too. Yeah. Um, you know, when you think of the Super Bowl and... Uh, the size of the viewing audience that it draws. Uh, last Super Bowl was over 114 million people. Um, you know, in comparison to the population of, of the United States, um, that, that, that's a huge portion of the U.S. population, which automatically means that it's reaching, you know, just a, a very um, broad, diverse demographic in terms of uh, everything, including age. Um, so one of the concerns that advertisers should have are who, who's seeing these ads that, I mean, in some instances, maybe they're appropriate in another context uh, with um, an audience that's more strictly uh, an adult, you know, older demographic. But in the Super Bowl, you have everybody watching from, um, you know, toddlers on up. And some of the things there, particularly, you know, GoDaddy, you think, well, that's probably not appropriate for for anybody, uh, some of the things that they've shown, um, but um, certainly not for younger kids. W one of the specific things in terms of GoDaddy would be just the the sexual imagery that's shown and really heavy. I mean, 
I don't even know if I'd call it innuendo because it's just right out there. Yeah, it's, Danica it's Patrick direct. is one of the big stars of, of those commercials. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, they, they've shown some pretty explicit images. Um, and uh, there, there's some things there that are troubling when you think of, and we've have, we have conversations about this often in classes at Messiah College, about the, the, the way that they portray women and uh, the objectification, for instance, of, of women. And it can happen to men, too. Um, but um, GoDaddy is particularly notorious for that. And I'd like to see, um, with the mindful marketing that, that I've developed that we, we use in classes, to see advertisers increasingly looking at both the efficacy of their ads, but at the same time, are they ethical and are what kind of um, societal values are they hopefully upholding but, um, but not compromising? Um, the five values that I, I've pointed out for that are decency, fairness, honesty, respect, and stewardship. And certainly with GoDaddy, there's, there's um, real concern about decency in those ads as well as respect for people and their, their personhood. Mm-hmm. Keith, you, when we were uh, in communication ahead of time, one of the commercials from last year that you pointed out was a nationwide commercial. Mm-hmm. And I also think about uh, a, a spot from a few years ago when T- Tim Tebow, quarterback, made what was considered an anti-abortion message at the same time. But talk about that nationwide commercial, if you would. Yeah, it- there's a time and place for for everything, and I think, uh, you know, the Tim Tebow spot and the Nationwide spot, um, they had good intentions, right? Nationwide last year they did uh, a PS public service announcement type spot. They wanted to educate people on the dangers of accidents in the home, and for for people to, to increase safety, uh, the which is a good message. And they created a spot that was, you know, it was a kid playing, and and he's talking about. Um, all the things in life that he could do, but he's not going to do them because he's dead. And some some public service announcements have to take that that scary approach to get get us to wake up and be and realize that we need to be safer. But think about the environment of the Super Bowl. People are at Super Bowl parties. They're looking f- to have a good time, and all the other ads are kind of uh, these these great mini movies and and comedy. It, people, it just really hit people the wrong way. It's, it's. They didn't want to be brought down like that, and it was also kind of a blind, like leading you. You thought it was this great spot about this nice kid, and then he's like, "I'm dead," and it, people reacted very negatively to it. I think in a different context, that would have been a good spot, uh, but you have to think about that as well. Go ahead. We only have about 45 seconds left. The other thing I was going to mention for that, uh, on the surface, some people might think, "Well, it's good because it's helping to present." prevent accidents, which hopefully it did some of that. But at the same time, um, you have to figure that there might be some people watching the Super Bowl who have lost children to accidents. And how how troubling would that be to be reminded of that, not just as you're watching by yourself, but like he said, in the context of a Super Bowl party, that, that could be very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I want to thank both of you for being with us today. Keith Quisenberry is Assistant Professor of Marketing at Messiah College, and Dr. David Hagenboo is a Marketing and Business Ethics Professor uh, and founder of Mindful Marketing at Messiah College. Uh, uh, real quick, what should we look for? And I mean about five seconds, what should we look for on Sunday? Uh, I'm putting. I'm looking for the Anheuser-Busch uh, Clydesdale spot to be up there, and for Doritos dog, the dog story. Okay, we'll look for those. Thank you very much for being with us today. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>